Life of Johnson, Volume 2, Section 10. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 2, by James Boswell, Section 10. 1772, Continued. On Saturday, April 11th, he appointed me to come to him in the evening, when he should be at leisure to give me some assistance for the defence of Hasty, the schoolmaster of Campbelltown, for whom I was to appear in the House of Lords. When I came, I found him unwilling to exert himself. I pressed him to write down his thoughts upon the subject. He said, "'There's no occasion for my writing. I'll talk to you.' He was, however, at last prevailed on to dictate to me, while I wrote as follows. The charge is that he has used immoderate and cruel correction. Correction in itself is not cruel. Children, being not reasonable, can be governed only by fear. To impress this fear is therefore one of the first duties of those who have the care of children. It is the duty of a parent, and has never been thought inconsistent with parental tenderness. It is the duty of a master, who is in his highest exaltation when he is loco parentis. Yet, as good things become evil by excess, correction, by being immoderate, may become cruel. But when is correction immoderate? When it is more frequent or more severe than is required ad monendum et docendum, for reformation and instruction. No severity is cruel, which obstinacy makes necessary, for the greatest cruelty would be to desist, and leave the scholar too careless for instruction, and too much hardened for reproof. Locke, in his treatise of education, mentions a mother with applause, who whipped an infant eight times before she had subdued it. For had she stopped at the seventh act of correction, her daughter, says he, would have been ruined. The degrees of obstinacy in young minds are very different, as different must be the degrees of persevering severity. A stubborn scholar must be corrected till he is subdued. The discipline of a school is military. There must be either unbounded license or absolute authority. The master who punishes not only consults the future happiness of him who is the immediate subject of correction, but he propagates obedience through the whole school, and establishes regularity by exemplary justice. The victorious obstinacy of a single boy would make his future endeavors of reformation or instruction totally ineffectual. Obstinacy, therefore, must never be victorious. Yet it is well known that there sometimes occurs a sullen and hardy resolution that laughs at all common punishment and bids defiance to all common degrees of pain. Correction must be proportioned to occasions. The flexible will be reformed by gentle discipline, and the refractory must be subdued by harsher methods. 
the degrees of scholastic as of military punishment no stated rules can ascertain it must be enforced till it overpowers temptation till stubbornness becomes flexible and perverseness regular custom and reason have indeed set some bounds to scholastic penalties the schoolmaster inflicts no capital punishments nor enforces his edicts by either death or mutilation the civil law has wisely determined that a master who strikes at a scholar's eye shall be considered as criminal but punishments however severe that produce no lasting evil may be just and reasonable because they may be necessary such have been the punishments used by the respondent no scholar has gone from him either blind or lame or with any of his limbs or powers injured or impaired they were irregular and he punished them they were obstinate and he enforced his punishment but however provoked he never exceeded the limits of moderation for he inflicted nothing beyond present pain and how much of that was required no man is so little able to determine as those who have determined against him the parents of the offenders it has been said that he used unprecedented and improper instruments of correction of this accusation the meaning is not very easy to be found no instrument of correction is more proper than another but as it is better adapted to produce present pain without lasting mischief whatever were his instruments no lasting mischief has ensued and therefore however unusual in hands so cautious they were proper it has been objected that the respondent admits the charge of cruelty by producing no evidence to confute it let it be considered that his scholars are either dispersed at large in the world or continue to inhabit the place in which they were bred those who are dispersed cannot be found those who remain are the sons of his persecutors and are not likely to support a man to whom their fathers are enemies if it be supposed that the enmity of their fathers proves the justice of the charge it must be considered how often experience shows us that men who are angry on one ground will accuse on another with how little kindness in a town of low trade a man who lives by learning is regarded and how implicitly where the inhabitants are not very rich a rich man is hearkened to and followed in a place like campbelltown it is easy for one of the principal inhabitants to make a party it is easy for that party to heat themselves with imaginary grievances it is easy for them to oppress a man poorer than themselves and natural to assert the dignity of riches by persisting in oppression the argument which attempts to prove the impropriety of restoring him to the school by alleging that he has lost the confidence of the people is not the subject of juridical consideration for he, he is to suffer if he must suffer not for their judgment but for his own actions it may be convenient for them to have another master 
but it is a convenience of their own making. It would likewise be convenient for him to find another school, but this convenience he cannot obtain. The question is not what is now convenient, but what is generally right. If the people of Campbelltown be distressed by the restoration of the respondent, they are distressed only by their own fault, by turbulent passions, and by unreasonable desires, by tyranny which law has defeated, and by malice which virtue has surmounted. This, sir, said he, you are to turn in your mind, and make the best use of it you can in your speech. Of our friend Goldsmith, he said, Sir, he is so much afraid of being unnoticed, that he often talks merely lest you should forget that he is in the company. Boswell. Yes, he stands forward. Johnson. True, sir, but if a man is to stand forward, he should wish to do it not in an awkward posture, not in rags, not so as that he shall only be exposed to ridicule. Boswell. For my part, I like very well to hear honest goldsmith talk away carelessly. Johnson. Why, yes, sir, but he should not like to hear himself. On Tuesday, April 14th, the decree of the Court of Sessions in the schoolmaster's cause was reversed in the House of Lords, after a very eloquent speech by Lord Mansfield, who showed himself an adept in school discipline, but I thought was too rigorous towards my client. On the evening of the next day I supped with Dr. Johnson at the Crown and Anchor Tavern in the Strand, in the company with Mr. Langton and his brother-in-law, Lord Binning. I repeated a sentence of Lord Mansfield's speech, of which, by the aid of Mr. Longlands, the solicitor on the other side, who obligingly allowed me to compare his note with my own, I have a full copy. My lords, severity is not the way to govern either boys or men. Nay, said Johnson, it is the way to govern them. I know not whether it be the way to mend them. I talked of the recent expulsion of six students from the University of Oxford, who were Methodists, and would not desist from publicly praying and exhorting. Johnson, Sir! That expulsion was extremely just and proper. What have they to do at a university who are not willing to be taught, but will presume to teach? Where is religion to be learnt but at a university? Sir, they were examined and found to be mighty ignorant fellows. Boswell. But was it not hard, sir, to expel them? For I am told they were good beings. Johnson. I believe they might be good beings, but they were not fit to be in the University of Oxford. A cow is a very good animal in the field, but we turn her out of a garden. Lord Elibank used to repeat this as an illustration uncommonly happy. Desirous of calling Johnson forth to talk and exercise his wit, though I should myself be the object of it, I resolutely ventured to undertake the defence of convivial indulgence in wine, 
though he was not to-night in the most genial humour. After urging the common, plausible topics, I at last had recourse to the maxim in vino veritas, a man who is well warmed with wine will speak truth. Johnson. Why, sir, that may be an argument for drinking, if you suppose men in general to be liars. But, sir, I would not keep company with a fellow who lies as long as he is sober, and whom you must make drunk before you can get a word of truth out of him. Mr. Langton told us he was about to establish a school upon his estate, but it had been suggested to him that it might have a tendency to make the people less industrious. Johnson. No, sir. While learning to read and write is a distinction, the few who have that distinction may be the less inclined to work. But when everybody learns to read and write, it is no longer a distinction. A man who has a laced waistcoat is too fine a man to work, but if everybody had laced waistcoats, we should have people working in laced waistcoats. There are no people whatever more industrious, none who work more, than our manufacturers. Yet they have all learned to read and write. Sir, you must not neglect doing a thing immediately good from fear of a remote evil, from fear of its being abused. A man who has candles may sit up too late, which he would not do if he had not candles. But nobody will deny that the art of making candles, by which light is continued to us beyond the time that the sun gives us light, is a valuable art, and ought to be preserved. Boswell. But, sir, would it not be better to follow nature, and go to bed and rise, just as nature gives us light or withholds it? Johnson. No, sir. For then we should have no kind of equality in the partition of our time between sleeping and waking. It would be very different in different seasons and in different places. In some of the northern parts of Scotland, how little light is there in the depth of winter! We talked of Tacitus, and I hazarded an opinion that with all his merit for penetration, shrewdness of judgment, and terseness of expression, he was too compact, too much broken into hints, as it were, and therefore too difficult to be understood. To my great satisfaction, Dr. Johnson sanctioned this opinion. Tacitus, sir, seems to me rather to have made notes for an historical work than to have written a history. At this time it appears from his prayers and meditations that he had been more than commonly diligent in religious duties, particularly in reading the Holy Scriptures. It was Passion Week, that solemn season which the Christian world has appropriated to the commemoration of the mysteries of our redemption, and during which whatever embers of religion are in our breasts will be kindled into pious warmth. I paid him short visits, both on Friday and Saturday, and seeing his large folio Greek testament before him, beheld him with a reverential awe, 
and would not intrude upon his time. While he was thus employed to such good purpose, and while his friends in their intercourse with him constantly found a vigorous intellect and a lively imagination, it is melancholy to read in his private register, My mind is unsettled, and my memory confused. I have of late turned my thoughts with a very useless earnestness upon past incidents, I have yet got no command over my thoughts. An unpleasing incident is almost certain to hinder my rest. What philosophic heroism was it in him to appear with such manly fortitude to the world, while he was inwardly so distressed? We may surely believe that the mysterious principle of being made perfect through suffering was to be strongly exemplified in him. On Sunday, April 19th, being Easter Day, General Paoli and I paid him a visit before dinner. We talked of the notion that blind persons can distinguish colors by the touch. Johnson said that Professor Sanderson mentions his having attempted to do it, but that he found he was aiming at an impossibility that, to be sure, a difference in the surface makes the difference of colors, but that difference is so fine that it is not sensible to the touch. The general mentioned jugglers and fraudulent gamesters who could know cards by the touch. Dr. Johnson said, The cards used by such persons must be less polished than ours commonly are. <laughs> We talked of sounds. The general said, There was no beauty in a simple sound, but only in an harmonious composition of sounds. I presumed to differ from this opinion, and mentioned the soft and sweet sound of a fine woman's voice. Johnson, No, sir, if a serpent or a toad uttered it, you would think it ugly. Boswell, so would you think, sir, were a beautiful tune to be uttered by one of those animals? Johnson, no, sir, it would be admired. We have seen fine fiddlers whom we liked as little as toads. Talking on the subject of taste and the arts, he said that difference of taste was in truth difference of skill. Boswell, but, sir, is there not a quality called taste which consists merely in perception or in liking? For instance, we find people differ much as to what is the best style of English composition. Some think Swift's the best, others prefer a fuller and grander way of writing. Johnson, Sir, you must first define what you mean by style, before you can judge who has a good taste in style, and who has a bad. The two classes of persons whom you have mentioned don't differ as to good and bad. They both agree that Swift has a good, neat style. But one loves a neat style, another loves a style of more splendor. In like manner, one loves a plain coat, another loves a laced coat but neither will deny that each is good in its kind. While I remained in London this spring, 
I was with him at several other times, both by himself and in company. I dined with him one day at the Crown and Anchor Tavern in the Strand with Lord Elibank, Mr. Langton, and Dr. Vansittart of Oxford. Without specifying each particular day, I have preserved the following memorable things. I regretted the reflection in his preface to Shakespeare against Garrick, to whom we cannot but apply the following passage. I collated such copies as I could procure, and wished for more, but have not found the collectors of these rarities very communicative. I told him that Garrick had complained to me of it and had vindicated himself by assuring me that Johnson was made welcome to the full use of his collection, and that he left the key of it with a servant with orders to have a fire and every convenience for him. I found Johnson's notion was that Garrick wanted to be courted for them, and that, on the contrary, Garrick should have courted him, and sent him the plays of his own accord. But, indeed, considering the slovenly and careless manner in which books were treated by Johnson, it could not be expected that scarce and valuable editions should have been lent to him. A gentleman, having to some of the usual arguments for drinking, added this, "'You know, sir, drinking drives away care, and makes us forget whatever is disagreeable.' Would not you allow a man to drink for that reason? Johnson. Yes, sir, if he sat next you. I expressed a liking for Mr. Francis Osborne's works, and asked him what he thought of that writer. He answered, A conceited fellow. Were a man to write so now, the boys would throw stones at him. He, however, did not alter my opinion of a favorite author, to whom I was first directed by his being quoted in The Spectator, and in whom I have found much shrewd and lively sense, expressed indeed in a style somewhat quaint, which, however, I do not dislike. His book has an air of originality. We figure to ourselves an ancient gentleman talking to us. When one of his friends endeavoured to maintain that a country gentleman might contrive to pass his life very agreeably, Sir, he said, you cannot give me an instance of any man who is permitted to lay out his own time, contriving not to have tedious hours. This observation, however, is equally applicable to gentlemen who live in cities and are of no profession. He said, There is no permanent national character. It varies according to circumstances. Alexander the Great swept India. Now the Turks sweep Greece. A learned gentleman, who in the course of conversation wished to inform us of this simple fact, that the council upon the circuit at Shrewsbury were much bitten by fleas, took, I suppose, seven or eight minutes in relating it circumstantially. He, in a plenitude of phrase, told us that large bales of woolen cloth were lodged in the town hall, that by reason of this fleas nestled there in prodigious numbers, that the lodgings of the council were near to the town hall, and that those little animals moved from place to place with wonderful agility. 
Johnson sat in great impatience till the gentleman had finished his tedious narrative, and then burst out, playfully, however, "'It is a pity, sir, that you have not seen a lion, for a flea has taken you such a time that a lion must have served you a twelve-month.' He would not allow Scotland to derive any credit from Lord Mansfield, for he was educated in England. "'Much,' said he, "'may be made of a Scotchman, if he be caught young.'" Talking of a modern historian and a modern moralist, he said, There is more thought in the moralist than in the historian. There is but a shallow stream of thought in history. Boswell, But surely, sir, an historian has reflection. Johnson, Why, yes, sir, and so has a cat when she catches a mouse for her kitten. But she cannot write like fill in the blank, neither can fill in the blank. He said, I am very unwilling to read the manuscripts of authors and give them my opinion. If the authors who apply to me have money, I bid them boldly print without a name. If they have written in order to get money, I tell them to go to the booksellers and make the best bargain they can. Boswell. But, sir, if a bookseller should bring you a manuscript to look at... Johnson. Why, sir, I would desire the bookseller to take it away. I mentioned a friend of mine who had resided long in Spain, and was unwilling to return to Britain. Johnson, sir, he is attached to some woman. Boswell, I rather believe, sir, it is the fine climate which keeps him there. Johnson, nay, sir, how can you talk so? What is climate to happiness? Place me in the desert of Asia, should I not be exiled? What proportion does climate bear to the complex system of human life? You may advise me to go live at Bologna and eat sausages. The sausages there are the best in the world, and they lose much by being carried. On Saturday, May 9th, Mr. Dempster and I had agreed to dine by ourselves at the British Coffee House. Johnson, on whom I happened to call in the morning, said he would join us, which he did, and we spent a very agreeable day, though I recollect but little of what passed. He said, Walpole was a minister given by the king to the people. Pitt was a minister given by the people to the king, as an adjunct. The misfortune of Goldsmith in conversation is this. He goes on without knowing how he is to get off. His genius is great, but his knowledge is small. As they say of a generous man, it is a pity he is not rich. We may say of Goldsmith, it is a pity he is not knowing. He would not keep his knowledge to himself. Before leaving London this year, I consulted him upon a question purely of Scotch law. 
it was held of old and continued for a long period to be an established principle in that law that whoever intermeddled with the effects of a person deceased without the interposition of legal authority to guard against embezzlement should be subjected to pay all the debts of the deceased as having been guilty of what was technically called vicious intromission the court of session had gradually relaxed the strictness of this principle where the interference proved had been inconsiderable in a case which came before that court in the preceding winter i had labored to persuade the judges to return to the ancient law it was my own sincere opinion that they ought to adhere to it but i had exhausted all my powers of reasoning in vain johnson thought as i did and in order to assist me in my application to the court for a revision and alteration of the judgment he dictated to me the following argument this we are told is a law which has its force only from being the long practice of the court and may therefore be suspended or modified as the court shall think proper concerning the power of the court to make or to suspend a law we have no intention to inquire it is sufficient for our purpose that every just law is dictated by reason and that the practice of every legal court is regulated by equity it is the quality of reason to be invariable and constant and of equity to give to one man what in the same case is given to another the advantage which humanity derives from law is this that the law gives every man a rule of action and prescribes a mode of conduct which shall entitle him to the support and protection of society that the law may be a rule of action it is necessary that it be known it is necessary that it be permanent and stable the law is the measure of civil right but if the measure be changeable the extent of the thing measured never can be settled to permit a law to be modified at discretion is to leave the community without law it is to withdraw the direction of that public wisdom by which the deficiencies of private understanding are to be supplied it is to suffer the rash and ignorant to act at discretion and then to depend for the legality of that action on the sentence of the judge he that is thus governed lives not by law but by opinion not by a certain rule to which he can apply his intention before he acts but by an uncertain and variable opinion which he can never know but after he has committed the act on which that opinion shall be passed he lives by a law if a law it be which he can never know before he has offended it to this case may be justly applied that important principle misera est servitus ubi ius est aut incognitum aut vagum if intromission be not criminal till it exceeds a certain point 
and to that point be unsettled and consequently different in different minds, the right of intromission and the right of the creditor arising from it are all jura vaga, and by consequence are jura incognita, and the result can be no other than a misera servitus, an uncertainty concerning the event of action, a servile dependence on private opinion. It may be urged, and with great plausibility, that there may be intromission without fraud, which, however true, will by no means justify an occasional and arbitrary relaxation of the law. The end of the law is protection as well as vengeance. Indeed, vengeance is never used but to strengthen protection. That society only is well governed where life is freed from danger and from suspicion, where possession is so sheltered by salutary prohibitions that violation is prevented more frequently than punished. Such a prohibition was this, while it operated with its original force. The creditor of the deceased was not only without loss, but without fear. He was not to seek a remedy for an injury suffered, for injury was warded off. As the law has been sometimes administered, it lays us open to wounds, because it is imagined to have the power of healing. To punish fraud when it is detected is the proper act of vindictive justice, but to prevent frauds and make punishment unnecessary is the great employment of legislative wisdom. To permit intromission and to punish fraud is to make law no better than a pitfall. To tread upon the brink is safe, but to come a step further is destruction. But surely it is better to enclose the gulf and hinder all access than by encouraging us to advance a little, to entice us afterwards a little further, and let us perceive our folly only by our destruction. As law supplies the weak with adventitious strength, it likewise enlightens the ignorant with extrinsic understanding. Law teaches us to know when we commit injury and when we suffer it. It fixes certain marks upon actions by which we are admonished to do or to forbear them. Qui sibi bene temperat in licitis, says one of the fathers, nunquam cadet in illicita. He who never intromits at all will never intromit with fraudulent intentions. The relaxation of the law against vicious intromission has been very favorably represented by a great master of jurisprudence, whose words have been exhibited with unnecessary pomp and seem to be considered as irresistibly decisive. The great moment of his authority makes it necessary to examine his position. Some ages ago, says he, before the ferocity of the inhabitants of this part of the island was subdued, the utmost severity of the civil law was necessary to restrain individuals from plundering each other. 
Thus, the man who intermeddled irregularly with the movables of a person deceased was subjected to all the debts of the deceased without limitation. This makes a branch of the law of Scotland, known by the name of vicious intromission, and so rigidly was this regulation applied in our courts of law, that the most trifling movable, abstracted mala fide, subjected the intermeddler to the foregoing consequences, which proved in many instances a most rigorous punishment. But this severity was necessary in order to subdue the undisciplined nature of our people. It is extremely remarkable that, in proportion to our improvement in manners, this regulation has been gradually softened and applied by our sovereign court with a sparing hand. I find myself under a necessity of observing that this learned and judicious writer has not accurately distinguished the deficiencies and demands of the different conditions of human life, which, from a degree of savageness and independence in which all laws are vain, passes or may pass by innumerable gradations to a state of reciprocal benignity in which laws shall be no longer necessary. Men, at first, wild and unsocial, living each man to himself, taking from the weak and losing to the strong. In their first coalitions of society, much of this original savageness is retained. Of general happiness, the product of general confidence, there is yet no thought, men continue to prosecute their own advantages by the nearest way, and the utmost severity of the civil law is necessary to restrain individuals from plundering each other. The restraints, then, necessary are restraints from plunder, from acts of public violence, from undisguised oppression, the ferocity of our ancestors, as of all other nations, produced not fraud, but rapine. They are not yet learned to cheat, and attempted only to rob. As manners grow more polished with the knowledge of good, men attain likewise dexterity in evil. Open rapine becomes less frequent, and violence gives way to cunning. Those who before invaded pastures and stormed houses now begin to enrich themselves by unequal contracts and fraudulent intromissions. It is not against the violence of ferocity but the circumventions of deceit that this law was framed, and I am afraid the increase of commerce and the incessant struggle for riches which commerce excites give us no prospect of an end speedily to be expected of artifice and fraud. It therefore seems to be no very conclusive reasoning which connects those two propositions. The nation is become less ferocious, and therefore the laws against fraud and covin shall be relaxed. Whatever reason may have influenced the judges to a relaxation of the law, it was not that the nation was grown less fierce, and I am afraid it cannot be affirmed that it is grown less fraudulent. 
since this law has been represented as rigorously and unreasonably penal, it seems not improper to consider what are the conditions and qualities that make the justice or propriety of a penal law. To make a penal law reasonable and just, two conditions are necessary and two proper. It is necessary that the law should be adequate to its end, that, if it be observed, it shall prevent the evil against which it is directed. It is, secondly, necessary that the end of the law be of such importance as to deserve the security of a penal sanction. The other conditions of a penal law, which, though not absolutely necessary, are to a very high degree fit, are that to the moral violation of the law there are many temptations, and that of the physical observance there is great facility. All these conditions apparently concur to justify the law which we are now considering. Its end is the security of property, and property very often of great value. The method by which it effects the security is efficacious, because it admits, in its original rigor, no gradations of injury, but keeps guilt and innocence apart by a distinct and definite limitation. He that intromits is criminal, he that intromits not is innocent. Of the two secondary considerations, it cannot be denied that both are in our favor. The temptation to intromit is frequent and strong, so strong and so frequent as to require the utmost activity of justice, and vigilance of caution, to withstand its prevalence, and the method by which a man may entitle himself to legal intromission is so open and facile that to neglect it is proof of fraudulent intention. For why should a man omit to do, but for reasons which he will not confess, that which he can do so easily, and that which he knows to be required by the law? If temptation were rare, a penal law might be deemed unnecessary. If the duty enjoined by the law were of difficult performance, omission, though it could not be justified, might be pitied. But in the present case, neither equity nor compassion operate against it. A useful, a necessary law is broken, not only without a reasonable motive, but with all the inducements to obedience that can be derived from safety and facility. I therefore return to my original position, that a law, to have its effect, must be permanent and stable. It may be said in the language of the schools, Lex non recipit maius et minus. We may have a law, or we may have no law, but we cannot have half a law. We must either have a rule of action, or be permitted to act by discretion and by chance. Deviations from the law must be uniformly punished, or no man can be certain when he shall be safe. That from the rigor of the original institution this court has sometimes departed cannot be denied, but as it is evident that such deviations as they make law uncertain make life unsafe, I hope that of departing from it there will now be an end. 
that the wisdom of our ancestors will be treated with due reverence, and that consistent and steady decisions will furnish the people with a rule of action, and leave fraud and fraudulent intromissions no future hope of impunity or escape. With such comprehension of mind, and such clearness of penetration, did he thus treat a subject altogether new to him, without any other preparation than my having stated to him the arguments which had been used on each side of the question. His intellectual powers appeared with peculiar luster, when tried against those of a writer of so much fame as Lord Kames and that, too, in his lordship's own department. This masterly argument, after being prefaced and concluded with some sentences of my own, and garnished with the usual formularies, was actually printed and laid before the lords of session, but without success. My respected friend, Lord Hales, however, one of that honourable body, had critical sagacity enough to discover a more than ordinary hand in the petition. I told him Dr. Johnson had favoured me with his pen. His lordship, with wonderful acumen, pointed out exactly where his composition began and where it ended but that I may do impartial justice, and conform to the great rule of courts, suum cuique tribuito, I must add that their lordships in general, though they were pleased to call this a well-drawn paper, preferred the former very inferior petition which I had written, thus confirming the truth of an observation made to be my one of their number in a merry mood, my dear sir, give yourself no trouble in the composition of the papers you present to us, <laughs> for indeed it is casting pearls before swine. I renewed my solicitations that Dr. Johnson would this year accomplish his long-intended visit to Scotland. To James Boswell, Esquire. Dear sir, the regret has not been little with which I have missed a journey so pregnant with pleasing expectations as that in which I could promise myself not only the gratification of curiosity, both rational and fanciful, but the delight of seeing those whom I love and esteem. But such has been the course of things that I could not come, and such has been, I am afraid, the state of my body, that it would not well have seconded my inclination. My body, I think, grows better, and I refer my hopes to another year, for I am very sincere in my design to pay the visit and take the ramble. In the meantime, do not omit any opportunity of keeping up a favourable opinion of me in the minds of any of my friends. Beatty's book is, I believe, every day more liked, at least I like it more, as I look more upon it. I am glad if you got credit by your cause, and am yet of opinion that our cause was good, and that the determination ought to have been in your favour. Poor Hasty, I think, had but his deserts. You promised to get me a little Pindar. You may add to it a little Anacreon. 
The leisure which I cannot enjoy, it will be a pleasure to hear that you employ upon the antiquities of the feudal establishment. The whole system of ancient tenures is gradually passing away, and I wish to have the knowledge of it preserved, adequate, and complete, for such an institution makes a very important part of the history of mankind. Do not forget a design so worthy of a scholar who studies the laws of his country, and of a gentleman who may naturally be curious to know the condition of his own ancestors. I am, dear sir, yours with great affection, Sam Johnson, August 31st, 1772. To Dr. Johnson, my dear sir, Edinburgh, December twenty fifth, seventeen seventy two. I was much disappointed that you did not come to Scotland last autumn. However, I must own that your letter prevents me from complaining, not only because I am sensible that the state of your health was but too good an excuse, but because you write in a strain which shows that you have agreeable views of the scheme which we have so long proposed. I communicated to Beatty what you said of his book in your last letter to me. He writes to me thus, You judge very rightly in supposing that Dr. Johnson's favorable opinion of any book must give me great delight. Indeed, it is impossible for me to say how much I am gratified by it, for there is not a man upon the earth whose good opinion I would be more ambitious to cultivate. His talents and his virtues I reverence more than any words can express. The extraordinary civilities, the paternal attentions, I should rather say, and the many instructions I have had the honor to receive from him, will be to me a perpetual source of pleasure in the recollection. Dum memor ipse mei, dum spiritus has reget artus. I had still some thoughts, while the summer lasted, of being obliged to go to London on some little business, otherwise I should certainly have troubled him with a letter several months ago, and given some vent to my gratitude and admiration. This I intend to do as soon as I am left a little at leisure. Meantime, if you have occasion to write to him, I beg you will offer him my most respectful compliments, and assure him of the sincerity of my attachment and warmth of my gratitude. I am, etc., James Boswell. End of section 10